This morning, we're continuing in a series called Jesus People. I've borrowed that moniker from when uh, this movement in the 70s that has kind of been creeping up uh, in news lately. Um, that's how I was introduced to it. Um, I, I imagine there were other names, maybe not as gracious of names, that were attached to those people uh, that you have shared with me as well. Uh, but the title of our series is called Jesus People, and really the heart behind it is to explore the idea and the practice of discipleship as revealed in the Gospel of Matthew chapters 8 through 12. And we've been in our series for quite a few weeks now. Let's do a bit of review. Yes, good. Um, I made these slides this morning, so I, yes. Here we are. So review, we've been in this for six weeks, and today is the seventh installment. Our first week, we talked about the cost of following Jesus, how ultimately to follow Jesus means that it costs us something. It costs us some level of comfort. Uh, it also challenges what conventions we hold dear, things that we might think are the all-important thing. And Jesus says, I want you to push past that and follow me anyway. Our second week, we talked about the call to follow Jesus. Our big idea that week was Christ's call communicates compassionate character and how Jesus, he, he just seems to call the most interesting people, people we may not even imagine uh, would be invited to come and follow him, and yet he calls everybody. And we see that in Matthew's gospel, specifically when he calls Matthew, because like today, people didn't really like tax collectors back then, uh, and Matthew was a tax collector. And he, had, he, he was around a bunch of disreputable people, and uh, yet Jesus showed his love by choosing Matthew and by hanging out with the people that were at Matthew's house. That didn't give... Jesus, some good PR points, by the way. We'll get to that in a moment. Our third week, we talked about the idea of contending in our faith, how as a disciple, we contend by doing different spiritual practices. And so we talked about how we express heaven, God's kingdom, when we follow the Holy Spirit's leading. And we participate in these different spiritual practices. In that passage, it was talking about fasting, going without food, but really it could apply to many spiritual practices that as God leads us into that thing, we, we listen and we obey. Our fourth week, we talked about carrying how Jesus commissioned his disciples early on to go and start practicing the stuff they'd seen him doing. And so he, he, he says, you, I give you this authority to go and preach the good news uh, to, to the lost children of Israel, and to do a bunch of supernatural stuff that Jesus was doing that it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. And so the big idea there was that Jesus empowers his disciples to carry his kingdom mandate and authority everywhere they go and everywhere we go as we follow Jesus by extension. Our fifth week, we talked about so there's the disciples, the people who like Jesus. Then there's these two categories that get brought up in the Gospels that 
it's hard to kind of categorize them, but we did anyway. Uh, we call them the crowds and the cynics. People who liked the idea about Jesus and what Jesus was doing, but they weren't quite sure about him. And then there were the people who they weren't sure about him and they just felt he needs to stop. <laughs> and so the truth is that evidence of God's kingdom is showing then as well as today. And the big question at the heart of that passage was, are you paying attention? And then if you are paying attention, what are you going to do with it? Last week, we talked about the idea of grace. Don't you love that? The idea of grace and how that enters into a disciple's life because he turns from this talking about the crowds and the cynics, and then he turns and um, he, he starts talking about, uh, you know, the issue of grace and how he, you know, he invites the people, come and follow me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And how that rest is not something we earn, but it's something that he gives us anyway. And that although it might be difficult it might be the most gracious thing and loving thing we've experienced. There's a lot of cool stuff that happens about following Jesus. At the same time, we need rest. We're not robots. That's how I tell it to my kids. They love to quote that to me. But God doesn't expect you just to be used. He wants you to be his child and to be loved and to be cared for as well. So that all brings us to today. You can go to the next slide. The title for today's message is Good. <clears throat> uh, we're going to continue talking about the idea of rest. It's not going to be a full expose on rest, but there's this certain word that's going to come up in our passage where Jesus calls something good. That's going to be a nice thing. Our passage is Matthew 12, 1 through 21. And the big idea that we're going to be exploring together today is that Jesus' people, that's you and I, we participate and partner with good found in his name. Uh, Jesus' people participate and partner with good found in his name. You can go to the next slide. On Friday, um, I did a lot of traveling this week and um, lots of thinking while on the road, listening to music and everything. Uh, I was on the way to uh, this meeting in Portland uh, that I had been invited into, and uh, it started at 9 o'clock, so that means I have to leave pretty early. Um, I got to this point where I was on Highway 36, and it intersects at Highway 99. I'm sure you've all taken this road before. Uh, Jim showed this to me at one point. Uh, and it's changed my life. Um, but <laughs> I say that with all truth. It really has. It shaves off a lot of time in my commute up there. So I was driving. I was, I was making good time. And then I got to that light at like, I want to say maybe seven in the morning, stupid early, <laughs> let me just say. And I, I come up to that light and, I, and the light is red and it's just staying red. All the while, all these cars are passing by on Highway 99, but I'm sitting there in my little Corolla 
waiting for it to turn. I even did the whole thing where like I let off the brake to try to like, there's motion here, sensor, come on, trip the light, please. I stayed at that light between, I kid you not, 10 to 15 minutes. Because I'm at an age where I, I love rules and I respect rules, right? And that we have certain rules that govern our driving stuff. All the while, there's everybody else around me who's not obeying the rules. But there came this point where I couldn't, I had to get to Portland. I had a meeting that was supposed to start at a certain time, and I had to get there. And so I ran the light. I confess that to you now. I, so, you know, and that's what's interesting to me about this is that sometimes there are good rules that are set in place, and they have a good place in our, the way we function, the way we do things. And yet sometimes, for good reasons, sometimes we break the rule. Now, I'm not talking about sin, like true, like I'm not talking about that, so don't misunderstand me. But I'm saying like in this situation, there is no way that light was going to change. I can almost guarantee you. It was like on a timer or something, and it's like there is no way I would be able to turn and do that. I digress. But here we are. So today we're talking about, though, there's going to come up in our passage where Jesus, he's at it again. He's, he's causing a stir. Uh, but this time it's with the religious leaders, as always. And um, it's, you know, it's a situation where they're getting hung up on some rules that Jesus breaks. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It's also up on the screen if you'd like to follow along that way as well. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. Bold move, Jesus. Here we go. And a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful 
to heal on the Sabbath. He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Amen. The first thing I see in our passage is that we are refreshed when we rest in Jesus' saving and divine love. So verses 1 through 8, it's this passage is broken up into like three different scenes where um, three different things are happening, but they all kind of tie together, and I love it. So the, the first scene is that Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through a grain field, as you do, and they're, they're walking, doing their thing, and um, they start plucking some heads of grain because they were hungry. And lo and behold... I don't know if you ever do this. This is my sanctified imagination coming out. It's like either the Pharisees were walking there or it feels like the Pharisees were just hiding and waiting. And it's like, we want to know if Jesus is going to slip up. And then they pop out, Jesus! <laughs> it's like, that's what it feels like to me when I read that passage because it's like, look, your disciples, they're... They're harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Which, if you were to read in the Old Testament and, you know, do some study on uh, what the Bible calls the Sabbath, it is a day that's set apart for rest. It's for us to reflect on the Lord and how He created us and to worship Him and to enjoy his presence on that day. There's a lot of reasons in the Old Testament that are given to practice the Sabbath. Number one of them, it's in the top 10, in the 10 commandments that God gives. He says, observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now, to the Pharisees' credit, they were making doubly sure that they didn't go into exile again. They were wanting to be faithful to God's word. They studied it down to like the very like, because it was handwritten back then, like the very like, like the, the dot and tittle, that's what they used to call it. But you know, the stroke of the pen, they would st 
study it. And then they made up different laws and things and regulations around it to say, well, so how would we apply this? So is it okay for me to take like 10 steps on the Sabbath? Does that work? Is that too much for rest? And so they had all these kinds of rules and regulations around it. For example, you could only travel, I think it was up to like a mile or a mile and a half on the Sabbath, uh, usually to go to synagogue and to worship and all of that, but you could go that far, but no place was open. There are some of you here today where you remember a time when there was a thing in our good country called Sabbath laws, where there was on Sunday, nowhere was open, <laughs> except for the church. <laughs> um, and and so it's interesting because the Pharisees, even with their best intentions, which might not even be there because they, it's like I said, it's like they were just, I imagined this as I was studying this week, like, it's like they popped out of nowhere. Ha, gotcha. And then Jesus goes into this thing where he says, haven't you read? Which is kind of a big insult to the Pharisees because like I said, they were very rigorous in their study of the scriptures. Haven't you read? You can go to the next slide, Richard. Um, and so there's a picture of some grain, some grain kernels that they would have been eating um, on the walk. Um, this was not stealing, by the way, so it's not even like that was. It, there was uh, um, space within the law that allowed people to walk by and like take a couple things of grain and to, to eat. It was like their version of food stamps, virtually, um, or, you know, public assistance. But then Jesus, he brings up this, this point. He says, you know, haven't you read when David, when he and his companions were hungry, they entered the house of God and ate the bread they weren't supposed to eat? What is going on there? Well, I'm glad you asked. So we haven't done a study in the tabernacle yet. We probably should at some point because it gets referenced a lot in Scripture. But in, in the tabernacle, in, in the Old Testament, and eventually the temple, um, there were certain um, pieces of furniture that facilitated worship. And the, the very first one you get to is the bronze altar. That's where you offer your, your sacrifice, and that's where you deal with your sin. Then you go to uh, uh, what's called the bronze laver. That's where there's water and you cleanse yourself um, before entering into um, the common space. And then there's, beyond that point is the holy place. Only the priests get to go into the holy place. And in the holy place, there's a couple of different pieces of furniture, but one of them is called the table of the presence or the table of showbread, depending on your translation. And on this table, they had these big cakes of bread that they would set there, and the priests were allowed to eat the bread. And this particular table, it represented communion between us and the Lord, and that connection between us and, and Him. But Scripture is really clear, only the priests are allowed to do this. And yet we have described for us in 1 Samuel a point where Jesus and his mighty men are on the run because Saul's trying to kill them. And so he goes to the priest at Shiloh, that's where the tabernacle was set up, and he said, 
we're hungry, we're desperate, we need some food, will you please give us this bread? And the high priest at that time gave him the bread and broke the law. And yet, at that point, we don't see any kind of retribution given to that priest at that time. I'm sure he got a talking to (laughs) by somebody. And yet, Jesus cites this as an example of, this is this is an example of when it would be okay to break that kind of a law. Interesting. So then going on from there, he also gives the example of, don't you know that a pastor or priest, when they're doing their duties on the Sabbath day and they're performing the rituals, they're, they're slaughtering the cow, they're, they're waving the grave offering before the Lord, they're offering up incense, they're doing work and they desecrate the Sabbath just by doing that. Um, And so it's really interesting that there are these two pictures here. And then uh, this picture up here is uh, one I've used before. It's uh, an artistic rendering of what we think Solomon's temple looked like based on what Scripture describes. And in Jesus' day, Um, this wasn't even the temple that was around. Uh, So there was the temple that was rebuilt, like we covered when we went through Nehemiah, um, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And then King Herod, he was like the big uh, property mogul of his day. He was like, I think I can make this better. And so he, he decided, some of you got that reference. And so he's like, I'm gonna make a temple so big, it's gonna be great. It's going to be fantastic. And so, um, no temple like this ever before. And so, I mean, the temple was massive in Jesus' day. Incredible massive. And then Jesus points out, I love it, uh, you know, something greater than the temple is here. How cool is that? That's, I mean, those are some pretty bold words that Jesus is saying because I'm sure the Pharisees who loved their practice of religion, they were pretty proud of the fact that, look at this great big temple. Isn't this amazing? And yet, Jesus is saying something greater than the temple is here. What is going on? Well, it's because, so, and then the third example is a quote from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, which we've covered before in Matthew just a couple weeks ago, where Jesus quotes saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent if you understood what that meant. And then uh, Jesus makes the statement in verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In that phrase alone, that was like Jesus drawing a line in the sand, saying, I am the Son of Man, so I am the Savior who is to come. And then by claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath, some scholars believe, and I do too, that that's him basically saying, I am equal to the Father who gave you the command in the first place to observe the Sabbath. I am divine basically, is what Jesus is saying. 
And so then, if that wasn't enough, Jesus, he, well, let, before we move on, you can go to the next slide. So what this makes me think of, I've used, I, I've used this picture before. We reference it a lot because I love the story. It's one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, the prodigal son story. Um, we won't cover all the details today, but when the father welcomes the son back, there is a union that happens where the father embraces the son. And what I find really interesting is because that, the father in that story, he defied convention. He broke all the rules, so to speak. You weren't supposed to do what the father did. As an old man, he ran. That was unacceptable. And then he embraced the son who had completely wrecked the family name, and yet the father embraced him. What I, how this all fits into what we just read and what we've been covering is that something greater than the temple was there. Jesus was up to something trying to bring the kingdom to pass and trying to start these little experiences for people where they got a taste of what the kingdom of heaven was really truly like. Not just an experience at the temple. It's not Jesus saying the temple's not okay or the temple's wrong or anything. He's just stating the simple fact that something greater is here. And if he just understood the mercy of God and that I... I don't need all the sacrifice if you would only just practice this mercy and that you would understand and receive this mercy, you would not condemn, you would not pass judgment. And so, the disciples, you and I, we participate and we partner with good found in Jesus' name. And the good in, in this section is the fact that Jesus, he redefines the terms, and he basically says, this is my call, and I'm going to tell you, it's okay for my disciples to harvest grain, because it's just a few kernels anyway, and they were hungry, and they're more important than that. You can go to the next slide. The second thing I see in our passage is that we're restored when we respond to Jesus' good invitation. <clears throat> So then he goes on from that place, and then he goes into their synagogue, Whew. their territory. It's, it's strange, but um, he goes there, and then immediately it's like they know what Jesus would do when he comes in there, that Jesus wasn't going to just let this, this opportunity pass to heal this, this brother with a withered hand. And so they ask Jesus, You've just said it's okay for your disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then he launches into the, the illustration of the sheep on the Sabbath. If, you were, if one of your sheep falls into a pit, would you not take hold of it and lift it out? And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? And so then Jesus, he just flat out shoots it to them straight Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That word good, I looked it up, it literally means good. Um, and so 
to both receive the good and then to do the good, to take action with the good. Because the way that that sentence is formed, it's the, the good is an adverb, so it's enhancing the action that's taking place. So if you're doing something, then do the good that God would have you do. And then Jesus, because he's, he's such an instigator in this, then he directs the man, stretch out your hand, he does so, and it was completely restored. Um, and I love the phrase where it says, just as sound as the other, that means it was just as good as if it had been there the whole time, just normal. You can go to the next slide. In this section, um, it's not so much, Jesus, he again redefines the question, but he's not trying to say work or healing or any of that, like the, the Pharisees are trying to focus on those aspects. Jesus was simply saying, is it right to be active or inactive on the Sabbath? If there's something in front of you that you need to take care of, and it would be good for you to take care of that thing. And so here's these two attitudes. Jesus illustrated, you know, the person reaching down to help somebody up, or in this case, a sheep. But then the Pharisees give the impression of like, no thanks, I can't do that. It's the Sabbath. Um, today, just before service, um, I was running pretty behind on a lot of things. Um, uh, whenever Angie is out of the house, I fall apart. <laughs> uh, she, she keeps me going. And so, but I say that because, you know, I was running late. James and I, we had gone through practice and everything. And, uh, and I had had a plan of like, okay, these are the, here's my to-do list of everything I got to do. Profaning the Sabbath. But all the things I got to do in order to get ready for service. And this woman came into the church and needed gas for her car. And, and started crying because, like, I, I've, I've been around enough to where I need... There's interview question kind of things that you go through to just hear the story, hear what they're going through, all of that. And she started crying because she's... in really rough shape, rough background, uh, has family here in town who are in rough shape, have a rough background, and weren't able to help her. And as she was passing by, she saw our church, and she pulled in and felt the impression from God to come here. Now, whether, I don't know all the details of her, her faculties, however, I was faced with a challenge I could say, no, <laughs> I can't do that. This is not the day to do it. Now, I'm not that kind of a person anyway, but I, I could just say, like, maybe later, or I could, like, kick the can down the road a little bit and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or I could help somebody who had fallen down, so to speak, who was down on their luck. Now, I'm not saying that to puff myself up, so don't get that impression at all. Um, because for me, uh, that's still just, that's something I wrestle with. 
as a pastor of not trying to get too cynical about those things. But I was, I was challenged with the fact that, man, here's a person who needs help. And then, you know, when we were over getting gas, um, I got to pray with her, and that was a, a good healing time, I think, for her, and, and that was good. That doesn't get her out of, the, <laughs> um, out of trouble, but what it does do is it helps those kinds of moments help to practice and to partner with whatever God's doing in a person's life and coming alongside and saying, I'll help you. I'll show you the good that I've found in Christ, and I'll show you that good. Now, for you and I today, you know, uh, we still have one point to go from here. I don't know how we're going to get there, but here we go. If we were to apply this, you know, the point was we are restored when we respond to Jesus' good invitation. There was the man with the withered hand. I mean, he just showed up to church broken. He, and, you know, thankfully they had that kind of a moment where uh, he could sit in a certain part of the, the synagogue there and show up and participate, but he, he came broken. He had a withered hand. He would not be allowed to even enter the temple because of that, but he was in the church, uh, the local synagogue there. And evidently the Pharisees knew about it. Somehow they didn't do anything about it. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, maybe it's because they always saw him just on the Sabbath. Who knows? But for you and I today, I think one of the things I just want to encourage you with is that you don't have to have it all together to come to Jesus. You don't have to have it all together. He just wants you to go to him. And then he's the one who can administer the good, the things you need. Looking around, there's, there's people, I, I don't know all of your stories, but I do know that I've been broken at times. And I know that I'm willing to bet you've been broken too, and maybe this morning you're feeling a bit broken. And I just want to encourage you that God's good is for you this morning. Will you participate in it? Will you be open to receive it? Or will you be like, not today, Jesus, I'm too broken. And after all, this is the Sabbath after all. So, I mean, even though this is supposed to be a time of refreshment and resting anyway, no thanks. Or will you just be open to that embrace from the Lord? You can go to the next slide. Um, <clears throat> the third thing I see in our passage is that we are reliant on the rescuing work of Jesus to set all things right. In the Gospel of Matthew, he is very dead set on wanting to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Savior, if you haven't figured that out by now. Uh, he's really, he's passionate about it. He wants people to know it beyond the shadow of a doubt. And so there's these moments in the, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew where he says, and this was done to fulfill. And usually in Matthew, he loves Isaiah. So he says what the prophet said, and usually it's a quote from Isaiah. 
And so he says this is done to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said about the servant God was going to send. And if you were to look this up, we're not going to right now for the sake of time, but if you were to look it up, it is a fascinating comparison. There's what Matthew says, and then there's what Isaiah says. And it's almost verbatim. But it's interesting because uh, in, in the original Hebrew, uh, when it talks about, let me read here, um, when it does say um, in verse 18, and he will proclaim justice to the nations, the word in Hebrew is coastlands. And that was somehow some vernacular to say, you know, the people who are not God's people, but it's the, the people who are not, you know, outside of our nation, those people. And so that's why the NIV translates it nations. What's interesting, though, is that in the Hebrew, all it does is talk about the region. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was around in, in Jesus' day and when Matthew was writing, it specifically says the word Gentiles. That's everybody who's not a Jew. And what's fascinating to me about all of this is that the revelation was going to be given to those who were not God's people, proclaiming justice to the Gentiles or the nations. And it's interesting that Matthew would write it because he is wanting the Jews to know Jesus. And yet, if I were a Jew reading that, I would think, are you sure about that, Matthew? Why are you using that translation? You should use the Hebrew. Put the Hebrew in there. But he didn't. He specifically used the quotation from the Greek, which is fascinating to me. And what is revealed in this whole passage, what is, what is experienced in that fulfillment of what Jesus is doing is that Jesus, the one whom God loves in whom he delights, God has put his spirit on him in order to proclaim justice to the nations. And biblical justice simply means it's not condemnation per se. That's not the focus. It's to set things right. If things are wrong, you make them right. If things are broken, you try to make them whole. That's the emphasis. And so Jesus, this, well, the Messiah is supposed to be somebody who comes and sets things right. And then it goes on to say he will not quarrel. So he's not going to fight about it. He's not going to try to draw attention to himself. He's going to suffer. He's going to be, you know, like a smoldering wick. I love that illustration. But he's not going to be snuffed out till he has brought justice through to victory. This is like a moment in, in literature and even in this gospel where Matthew is giving us a foreshadow to the fact that Jesus is going to do something. And thankfully for us today, we know what that is. It is Jesus went to the cross for you and I. You can go to the next slide. And it's hard to find a good picture of a cross. <laughs> uh, but this is as good as I can do for now, but just that reminder that the person in the work of Jesus 
was meant to set things right through to victory. But when we think about the cross, that's not a very, it didn't feel like a very victorious moment for the disciples. Um, if you were to watch any of the, the passion plays or, or, or movies that are done about Jesus or anything, and you were to see this kind of a moment, you wouldn't look at that and say, ah, there's some victory. This felt more like defeat to the disciples. And yet, the promise is that the Messiah is going to bring victory. The Pharisees were looking for a different kind of victory to happen, but Jesus had a different plan and a different purpose of what he was trying to do. And then, that victory isn't just for the Jews. In verse 21, it says, in his name, the nations or the Gentiles, you and me, the non-Jewish people, will put their hope, or in his name, the nations will put their hope. They're not going to, we're not going to put our trust in a bunch of other things or another, a bunch of other world religions or, or any of that or or whatnot, but we're going to put our trust in Jesus and his name. So circling back around to that, that big idea of Jesus' people participate and partner with the good found in his name, um, it starts by us receiving his grace for us and entering into that, that place of refuge and and refreshment in him. Like he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then to partner with it means for us to go about practicing God's kingdom good here in our lives. And that can take all sorts of forms. We can talk about that um, a lot, but not today. <laughs> because, um, uh, and James, you can come up. Uh, we'll, we're going to transition now to our time of communion together. Because ultimately, in, in this passage, it is a, it's pointing us to the cross and what Jesus did for us there that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him because of our faith in him, that we have put our faith and our trust in his name. It's not my name that's going to save me. It's not yours that's going to save you or even me. It's only Jesus. And so, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he wrote this about the Lord's Supper or communion. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, not just proclaiming the empty grave, but we proclaim the fact that Jesus died for you and he died for me. Let's pray.